It's Friday, July 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has decided to drop the effort to get a citizenship question on the 2020 census and will instead issue an executive order requiring all federal agencies to submit information on citizenship data to the U.S. Department of Commerce. The president is insisting that he is not backing down and will find out how many citizens and non-citizens are in the country. Nicole Norea, immigration reporter for Law360, joins us to explain it all. Next, the FBI is investigating a secret gang-like group within the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. The federal probe comes after there were allegations of beatings and harassments by members of the Banditos, a group of deputies in the East L.A. Sheriff's Station. The members of the group all share a tattoo of a skeleton with a sombrero, bandolier, and pistol. Maya Lau, reporter for the L.A. Times, joins us for more on this investigation. Finally, a skull fragment found in the roof of a cave in Greece is now considered the oldest fossil of Homo sapiens ever discovered in Europe. Believed to be 210,000 years old, the discovery can potentially rewrite the history of humans and Neanderthals in Europe. Ed Young, writer at The Atlantic, joins us for what this might mean for the history of our species. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As a result of today's executive order, we will be able to ensure the 2020 census generates an accurate count of how many citizens, non-citizens, and illegal aliens are in the United States of America. Not too much to ask. Joining us now is Nicole Norea, immigration reporter at Law360. The president announced on Thursday that he is dropping further attempts to include the citizenship question on the 2020 census. Instead, he signed an executive order That's going to require the Commerce Department to separately gather data from other departments within the government and then putting that together with the census information, they'll get a complete picture of who all the citizens and non-citizens are in the country. I mean, this press conference that he gave was kind of weird. It started off with this rhetorical question, are you a citizen? Oh, gee, I can't answer that question. And from there, just kind of like he brought Bill Barr out for an awkward thing. Uh, tell us how, how it went down, Nicole. He essentially conceded that continuing to pursue the citizenship question in court would cause delays preventing the census from being printed on time. But at the same time, he announced this executive order saying that states may actually be able to use the citizenship data that the Department of Commerce will estimate to draw electoral districts based on eligible voters. So that in some ways could be a concerning point that the ACLU at least has highlighted as something that could be challenged in court at a later time. But as of now, it appears that Trump is totally backing down on including the citizenship question on the census and definitely is not a win for him. He specifically said that I'm not backing down in my effort to get all of this information on who are citizens and non-citizens. Now, this method that he's going to go through with this executive order is basically what the Census Bureau said they should do instead. You know, go through all the other departments and you can get this information this way. I guess the executive order is just making it clear that these other departments have to provide this information to the Commerce Department? They can provide this data to the Commerce Department, but they also won't be actually allowed to use any kind of census data to make that data more accurate. This is just basically culling the resources that already exist within the government and isn't creating a whole lot of new resources. Let's talk about Bill Barr, the attorney general, because the president brought him out to explain the back down uh, is the way I saw it. 
obviously the Supreme Court said, you can't put this question on the census. You need to go back to the drawing board and give us different reasons for why you want to do this. You didn't explain yourself well enough the first time. So Bill Barr comes out to basically explain that away, saying the Supreme Court shot us down. We can't do it this way. And he congratulated the president twice to say, congratulations, Mr. President, you're going to get these numbers anyways. I, I, it was just mm -hmm. a weird picture that was going on. He essentially couched this decision as a practical one. He said that if the White House went back to the drawing board and fully explained the rationale behind the citizenship question in New York federal court, where this case now is, they would definitely win. But with such an abbreviated timeline for printing the census, it ultimately, he said, just came down to a decision of practicality rather than it being a matter of not being able to win the legal arguments. It did seem that way because the Supreme Court did say that they do have the right to ask the question. It's just you're not doing it the right way just yet. Go back to the drawing board. And that th that was it. The timeline was just not working in their favor. They needed to start printing the census pamphlets since uh, July 1st, I believe it was. So mm -hmm. to go back to the drawing board, it would just delay everything. And, you know, that would just cause even more problems. This is all going on against this backdrop. We've been told that there's going to be a number of raids on undocumented migrant families uh, by ICE over the weekend. I think they're starting Sunday. Um, and they're going to be targeting at least 2,000 immigrants who have been ordered to be deported, and this is going to happen in at least 10 major cities. It's all in the same bucket of these Trump immigration policies that are sort of meant to scare immigrants, first into not responding to questions on the census that would improve their political power, and now thrust them sort of into hiding with these additional raids. Um, but, you know, the ACLU is now challenging these raids preemptively in New York federal court. They just filed a suit today saying that the government has to give at least refugee families who might be affected by this an opportunity to present their cases in court and have a chance to make their cases before deportation. Nicole Norea, immigration reporter at Law 360. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They want to know the hierarchy and how you get to be a member. They're asking questions about whether deputies have to commit illegal or criminal acts, such as planting evidence or perhaps getting into unlawful shootings in order to gain membership into the group. Joining us now is Maya Lau, reporter for the L.A. Times covering the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. The FBI is investigating a secret society of tattooed deputies in the East L.A. station. This has kind of been an ongoing problem. We've known about certain cop cliques that have been going on within the sheriff department for some time now. But this one in particular right now that's being probed is a group called the Banditos. The officers all involved in this group all share a similar tattoo which is a skeleton that has a sombrero, a bandolier, and a pistol. Tell us a little bit about what the FBI is investigating here. My colleague Joel Rubin and I spoke to several sources with knowledge of this FBI investigation who say the FBI appears to be looking at the workings of the banditos. They want to know the hierarchy and how you get to be a member. They're asking questions about whether deputies have to commit illegal or criminal acts, such as planting evidence or 
perhaps getting into unlawful shootings in order to gain membership into the group. We have also heard that the FBI wants to know about similar groups at other stations who also have skull tattoos. They have different designs, but the deputies at those stations have matching coordinated tattoos associated with those stations. And over the years, we've heard similar allegations of the group promoting an aggressive style of policing, seeing themselves as a gang or a group that has an us versus them mentality against the community. And so it seems like the the FBI is particularly interested in potential illegal activities by these groups, which would really more closely associate them with being a gang. The Sheriff's Department has nearly 10,000 deputies, and you were mentioning some other groups. There's other groups called the Spartans, the Regulators. These are uh, in the Century Station Department. There's a group called the Reapers, who is operating out of a station in South L.A. So these kind of groups are known. What benefit does this serve for the officers to be part of this group? What have we heard as to why they're doing this? What's the whole thought process behind it? Deputies that I've spoken to that defend the group say, look, you know, these are groups of drinking buddies. These are morale boosting groups that some of them really disavow the idea that you have to commit illegal acts to be part of them. They say it's about being a really hardworking, aggressive, but like aggressive in a good way officer. And that whereas some officers might clock in, clock out, these are the deputies who really put in the extra time, put in the extra work, go to extra lengths to help their fellow deputies. And so they get kind of rewarded and recognized for being part of that. And that also they might not feel that they get that kind of recognition from their bosses. So they find a lot of morale in these groups. They've likened it to groups in the military. You know, if you serve together, you know, everyone gets a similar tattoo. And they just think that it's a fraternity, a kind of band of brothers. But, you know, again, these groups over the years have have really been accused of some severe behavior. And I think that the question also is, even if they're fairly benign, does it promote a sort of us versus them mentality? And regardless of how benign the groups could be, they have caused millions of dollars in lawsuits. They've become a big liability for the county. And so the question is, how do these groups persist? And, you know, is it a good idea if the sheriff's department tolerates them? How did this current investigation get started? It seems that there was a crazy fight between some alleged bandito members in the sheriff's department and some other deputies. Last fall, there was a physical altercation at an off-duty party among various deputies. And the allegations are that the perpetrators of the fight or the physical altercation were some members of the banditos who were picking on people and then others tried to intervene and then they got really beaten up. And this resulted in some of the perpetrator deputies being put on leave. There's now a criminal case on them that's been presented to the district attorney. The district attorney has not yet filed charges, but they said they're still reviewing the case. And from that, several deputies came forward and got a lawyer and decided to file a claim, which is the first step that you take against the county before actually doing a lawsuit. You file a claim and you kind of lay out these allegations and they allege that this fight was just the boiling point for what had been months of harassing behavior. If there's sort of a sense that if you don't go along with what the banditos want or if the banditos try to recruit you and then you basically say no, that they'll make your life miserable, they will direct other deputies to not show up to your calls so they won't back you up. So say like you get called out to a really dangerous 
call with someone with a gun, no one will come up and back you up. Stuff like that, which is very dangerous. And so they file this claim. It gets public. It does appear that this FBI investigation sort of arose after that. This is not the first time that the feds have uh, looked into this kind of thing. There was watchdog panels in 1992 and 2012 that told the sheriff's department to root out these types of groups and obviously nothing happened. What has been the response from Sheriff Alex Villanueva? Because he even acknowledged that there is a presence by the banditos, but he says that they got rid of a bunch of deputies and he thinks that the problem is fixed right now. There's been a lot of mixed messages coming out of the sheriff's department for a number of years, including with the previous sheriff, Jim McDonnell, and now with Alex Villanueva, who on the campaign trail and even while he's been sheriff since December, has sort of made statements to the effect of these groups are just part of tradition, they're intergenerational hazing groups. There's nothing inherently wrong with them unless they're explicitly doing bad behavior. But at the same time, Villanueva has had to confront this in a, in a more direct way because this has spilled over so much. He said he transferred out 36 people from the station. His own captain of that station actually contradicted him and said, no, those 36 transfers are general transfers. And that he didn't know a set number of how many people had been transferred specifically because of the Benditos problem. Meanwhile, people also question, well, is transferring people really solving the problem? What about disciplining them? Vinoev has also instituted a policy that he says will crack down on this, saying that you can't be a part of any group that promotes unlawful or discriminatory behavior. Again, the catch to that is what group would openly or or in other ways come out as promoting discriminatory behavior. So I think Villanueva has walked this line of saying, well, this is just part of the history. If you know the sheriff's department, you know that these groups have always existed. What's the big deal? And at the same time, also kind of saying, oh, well, I've addressed the problem. I've had to fix the problem. I think the the lingering question is whether or not this is still going on at other stations. Villanueva has made it seem like, okay, so I transferred these people. We've presented a criminal case on some of them to the DA. Problem solved. And he actually told me yesterday he thinks the problem is fixed. And I've heard from other corners of the department that that it's not fixed. Maya Lau, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hundred and ten thousand years old. Now, that's not only the oldest human fossil outside of Africa, but it's also older substantially than all other human fossils from Europe. Joining us now is Ed Young, writer at the Atlantic. There's some skull fragments that were found in a roof of a cave in southern Greece. These are now being called the oldest fossils of Homo sapiens ever discovered in Europe. And this finding is likely to reshape the story of how humans spread into Europe coming from Africa. Tell us a little bit about this new discovery. There are two skulls. They were found in 1978 in a cave called Apodema in Greece. And they've only recently been analyzed using modern methods to work out what they are and how old they are. One of them is a Neanderthal, and that's not very surprising. But the other one appears to be the skull of a modern human. That's us, Homo sapiens. But it's 210,000 years old. Now, that's not only the oldest human fossil outside of Africa, but it's also older substantially than all other human fossils from Europe, which are at most 40,000 years old. So this puts humans in Europe far earlier than we expected. And weirdly, it puts us in Europe 
before Neanderthals, which is strange because there's always been this narrative that Neanderthals got there first, adapted very well to the continent, and their presence kept modern humans expanding out of Africa from making it into the continent. But now it seems that that hypothesis has holes in it because there were humans that then got replaced by Neanderthals that then in turn later got replaced by modern humans again. What were the new methods that they used to study these? Because they were found in 1978. And as you said, this other partial skull, it's like the left half of the skull, the back half of the skull, which is the more interesting right. one. What new methods did they use to, to look into this? Firstly, they used uranium dating to look at how old the fossils were by checking on trace amounts of uranium within the uh, specimens. But they also used CT scanning to create digital models of the two skulls and then analyze lots of different aspects of their shape, their curvature, and then compare them to the skulls of other ancient hominins, other Homo sapiens, other Neanderthals, and so on. And that analysis very clearly showed that even though this skull is only partial, as you say, it's just the back half and the left back half at that, it clearly clusters with other modern humans, with other Homo sapiens. Yeah, part of that is the shape of it, because Neanderthals, I think, from my understanding, have kind of a bump or something in the back of the head, whereas this portion of the skull is a lot more rounded, like modern humans. Right. Neanderthals have this sort of longer profile to the sides of their heads. Humans have this rounded globular shape to the back of our heads, and that's quite distinctive. That's sort of what we see in this new skull, which has kind of a mix of both modern and ancient features. It's not like classical Homo sapiens, it's not the same as you or I, but it does have features that are distinctive of our species and does suggest that we were in this part of the world much earlier than anyone thought. What have researchers said about the fact that these two pieces were found together? If you know one is a Neanderthal and the other one is more of a modern human skull, but they were found in the same area. It's very funny. They were found in this block of stone that's no bigger than a microwave oven. But the block is called breccia, which is a type of stone that's made from lots of fragments that have been cemented together. And the two skulls have very different ages. Uh, the Neanderthal is 170,000 years old. The human skull is 210,000 years old. And the cement around it, the breccia, is younger than both of them. So it sounds like what happened is both both of these skulls were in this cave in separate places. Erosion, flooding and so on dislodged them and they both ended up wedged in this different place than where they were originally buried and then were sort of cemented together. So what is the original narrative with regards to humans evolving and making their way to Europe? As we said, this changes that whole narrative there. The original story is that humans evolved in Africa and they expanded out of Africa, moving through the Middle East and then through the South of Asia. They were kept out of Europe by the strong presence of Neanderthals, that's what they were been there for a long time. And then at about 40,000 years ago, they then moved into Europe and displaced the Neanderthals. This new study shows, yes, it's still true that humans evolved in Africa, but they left the continent much earlier. They had already got into Europe. They were then displaced by Neanderthals before then returning to Europe and displacing the Neanderthals at about 40,000 years ago. It's interesting how something found in 1978 didn't really get the scrutiny it needed at the time. Years later, we found out more about it. And, you know, now we have this situation where the story can be rewritten. This skull, this skull from Apodema, really shows like just how much a single specimen can help to rewrite the arc of human history. Ed Young, writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.